Hello, my name is Ruth. The Old Testament reading is found in Deuteronomy 26, 16 through 18. This very moment, the Lord your God is commanding you to keep these regulations and case laws. So keep them and do them with all your mind and with your entire being. Today you have affirmed that the Lord will be your God and that you will walk in his ways and follow his regulations, his commandments, and his case laws, and that you will obey his voice. Today the Lord has gotten your agreement that you will be his treasured people, just like he promised by keeping his commandments. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Paula. The New Testament reading is found in James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. You must be doers of the word, and not only hearers who mislead themselves. Those who hear but don't do the word are like those who look at their faces in a mirror. They look at themselves, walk away, and immediately forget what they were like. But there are those who study the perfect law, the law of freedom, and continue to do it. They don't listen and then forget, but they put it into practice in their lives. They will be blessed in whatever they do. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Jill, and if you're able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will get into the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. On the judgment day, many people will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and expel demons in your name and do lots of miracles in your name? Then I'll tell them, I've never known you. Get away from me, you people who do wrong. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're gathered here in your name, in your presence to listen to your word, to hear your voice. So we ask that by your spirit, you would speak to us today. That through your scriptures, your spirit would be with us. And that your word would be living and active. And that it would pierce even our very souls with your love, your grace, your truth, your power, your help, your conviction, your everything. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's great to see you. Uh, parents, you survived Palm Sunday again. Well done. Well done. I don't think we lost any eyeballs yet. Uh, it's why I started wearing glasses. 
No, it's just because I'm blind. Uh, but Palm Sunday is a, is a special day in the church calendar. Uh, today we enter the final week of Lent. Uh, we would be began all the way back on Ash Wednesday. This is typically known as Holy Week. So for those of you who may be new to church or new to an idea of a calendar that follows the life of Jesus, this is Holy Week. And it begins with this day, Palm Sunday. We remember uh, the most famous donkey ride in history as Jesus uh, comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey in fulfillment of a prophecy found in Zechariah chapter 9. Uh, verse 9, where it's a prophecy about the Messiah, the King, the one who comes to save, comes humbly riding on a donkey. And as Jesus comes in, we read that the people are taking their cloaks and throwing them on the ground in front of him, probably in remembrance of an event that happened in 2 Kings, as Jehu comes into town and they're throwing their cloaks and proclaiming that Jehu is king. So in a way, they're saying Jesus is king as he's coming in to this time, and they're waving palm branches. Uh, the only gospel that records this is John. John's the only one that mentions palms. Uh, the palms are probably connected to an event that happened about 200 years before, as there were some leaders in Jerusalem known as the Maccabeans who threw off Rome, and they had this brief season of independence, and they celebrated by coining uh, coins with palm branches on them. And so there may have been this sense that people thought Jesus was coming in to overthrow Rome, didn't have a clue what it is that Jesus was really up to uh, all of those years ago. But they're singing songs of salvation, singing Hosanna, God save us, and singing songs to the son of David. We have all of these images, differing expectations that Jesus has versus what the crowd has, but all of it's connected to the idea of king and kingdom, that they're proclaiming Jesus as king, expecting the kingdom to come, and yet Jesus brings a kingdom in a most unusual way, in a way that sort of defied all of their expectations and filled them in greater ways than any of us could ever have imagined. And we're now in the last week of the best and most famous sermon ever preached, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, we spent three months uh, unpacking these words and still haven't even come close to saying all there is to say about Jesus's brilliant words here. But what we've tried to emphasize throughout the whole series is that what we're hearing in Jesus's words is the king calling us into the kingdom. We're hearing the king calling us into kingdom discipleship, to follow him in a kingdom way of life. And the sermon can be divided into three major sections. The first one where we started for a few weeks, you could call the grace of the kingdom. Here it's Jesus proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come, and then it's come for everyone in every situation. That The kingdom has come and has come to all of us. The kingdom has come for all of us. There's no one that the kingdom, that the king is not inviting into the kingdom. And not only that, but the kingdom also works through everyone. Jesus is blessed are you. And then he also says you are the salt and the light. And then the long section of the sermon is what we might call the ethics of the kingdom. Matthew 5, 17 through 7, 12, where Jesus says, okay, now that the kingdom has come to you, 
This is how the kingdom is going to work through you. This is what it means to be daughters and sons in the kingdom. This is what it means to live in this kingdom. This is the way of life that I've come to teach you and to show you. He begins that whole section, Matthew 5, 17, saying, Don't even begin to think that I've come away to do away with the law and the prophets. Notice the law and prophets reference there, referring to the whole Old Testament. Don't think I've come to get away, to do away with all of that. Instead, I've come to fulfill them. We talked about this several weeks ago to show you where this was pointing all along, to show you the direction, the trajectory of God's Torah of the law. And then it ends with the summary statement, the golden rule. Therefore, you should treat people in the same way that you want people to treat you. And then he says, this is the law and prophets bookends that whole section by mentioning the Old Testament. And in between, we find the most beautiful, compelling, and all-encompassing and demanding instructions that have ever been preached for the people of God. As Jesus talks to us about every aspect of our life, from our relationships, to our finances, to whether we use our words, uh, to the way that we pray, the whole encompassing vision of what it means to be human. And then we get to the last section, everyone's favorite, favorite which we might call the judgment of the kingdom. Matthew, that was a joke about the everyone's favorite part. If you didn't catch it, like, is this guy serious? Matthew 7, 13 to 27 this section contains some of the most austere statements in the New Testament. Some of the ones that we find like, wait, what? Jesus sent that? That, that has to be wrong. Surely they got something wrong in the translation. That's, that doesn't sound like Jesus would say something like that. And yet it is. It's these final words of Jesus in this sermon. I covered the final four verses way back in our opening sermon. So I'm going to focus on Matthew 7, 13 to 23 today. But here Jesus speaks seriously about life, about death, about judgment, about heaven, about hell. All of these kinds of things really like defy our cultural sensibilities. That when we hear words about life and death and judgment, there's something in sort of our cultural milieu that says, yeah, we just, let's not talk about that at all. We generally prefer Jesus at the beginning of the sermon. Jesus that's saying, blessed are you who? Then we prefer Jesus at the end of the sermon. As the sermon progresses, we actually become more uncomfortable with Jesus with each passing phrase. Our response internally to the Sermon on the Mount, I don't think is actually all that different than the response of the crowds in Holy Week. That the crowds on Holy Week begin shouting, Hosanna, Jesus is King. And by the time we get to the end of the week, they're shouting, crucify him. They're like, we love this guy. Yeah, we don't want anything to do with this guy. There's something that happens inside of us that's pretty similar. But the Jesus who calls us to come follow him is also the same Jesus who decries at the end of the sermon, get away from me. And there's a tension that we feel there. Frederick Bruner in his brilliant commentary says this. He says that Jesus without judgment, a Jesus who does not care about the content of people's lives doesn't exist. That's not the Jesus that we find in the Gospels. 
We find a Jesus in the Gospels that's bringing the kingdom to us in full grace and mercy and inviting us into a new way of life and a Jesus who cares deeply about how we live and a Jesus that cares deeply about justice, about things being made right in the world and a God, a Jesus that cares deeply about working with us and through us to bring his kingdom, to bring his justice into the world And so Jesus holds these things together, and we need to wrestle with his words and even wrestle with the tension that we feel. Why is it that we feel that tension? These are the places where, as we read the scripture, we have to ask the Spirit to let the scriptures read us, to read what's going on in our hearts and why we have the responses that we have. So we begin, 713 says this, "'Go in through the narrow gate.'" The gate that leads to destruction is broad and the road wide. And so many people enter through that. But the gate that leads to life is narrow. And that road is difficult. So few people find it. As Jesus has done several times throughout the sermon, he uses these stark contrasts. Narrow, wide, good, bad, love, hate. He uses these stark contrasts to illustrate his point. He says there is a narrow gate and there is a wide gate. There is a narrow road and there is a wide road. And the implication of Jesus' teaching is that the narrow gate and the, or the, sorry, the broad gate and the broad road, those are popular. Those are easy. Those are easy to find, and it's the regular way of life for humanity. And then he says, but there is a narrow gate and a narrow road that is less traveled, and it's difficult, it's costly, it's narrow and constricting, and sometimes hurts and can be painful. And Jesus tells us that that's the path of discipleship. The narrow gate and the narrow road are the way of discipleship. And that, of course, should not come as a surprise to us. If we've been listening to his words throughout that whole ethical section, Jesus is constantly calling us to a righteousness that he says surpasses the Pharisees, that surpasses the religious experts of the day. A righteousness that actually takes root in our heart and comes out in our everyday lives. So we can say from Jesus' words that the wide way seems to be the sense like just live however you want to live. Do whatever pleases you. You do you, boo. (laughs) Right? Like that's the sense of like the wide way. Just YOLO, whatever other things we want to get. Just have, you know, whatever you want. Your way, right away, Burger King's slogan for it. We can add all kinds of things over it, but it's just... Do whatever you feel like is the wide road. And he says that that road leads to destruction. And it leads to destruction in this world and in the world to come. And then he says, but the narrow way is to live the way that Jesus teaches. To live according to Jesus' instructions The way that Jesus describes it is the narrow way is to do the will of God. To live in a way that is consistent with the person and the teachings of Jesus. And he says that that road, that that way leads to life. Both now and forever. Life here 
in this world and life in the age to come. And what we get the sense of in this passage is that when Jesus comes to the end of the sermon, he's revealing the weight that he places on this life, on the life that we are currently living. And the sense we get at the end of the sermon is that our response to Jesus matters. That how we respond to the person, the invitation, the teaching, the instruction, the call, the command, the grace, the demand, how we respond to all of the things that Jesus offers actually matters. And now what we typically want to do at this point is to then is to now get into theological debate. Theological debates are really they are important and they matter, but they have a way of distancing ourselves from the text. What we want to immediately get into is talking about, okay, well, where does God's will and, humans will, and human will meet in the middle of this? Where, where do those things sort of come together? We had the Calvin Reform Group on one side, the Wesleyan Armenian on the other side, and a whole bunch of us in the middle going, like, what do we do? And those are important conversations to kind of wrestle through the mystery of God's will in the world and our will, our submission to his will, and how those things all relate. Or the second debate we want to get into is the long-standing debate about faith and works. Was well, like, but we're saved by, by, by grace, by faith, not by works. So what are we talking about? Our response, how does that fit in to all of those things? And those questions are so, so very important. But I don't think that's what Jesus's first followers heard. I don't think they sat around and go, I wonder what Calvin would think about that. I wonder what Wesley would think about that. They're like, what did Jesus just say? And immediately going, wait, what does that mean for me? Scott McKnight notes that Jesus's words ought to lead us first into self-inspection rather than theological speculation. Jesus' words ought to lead us into self-inspection, introspection, reflection. They ought to lead us to examine our lives and our own discipleship journey. Are we looking for someone or are we looking to someone or to something else to be the gateway into the kingdom? Jesus and John says, I am the gate. And here he says that gate is narrow. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And so are we looking elsewhere for the gateway into the kingdom? Because likely if we're looking elsewhere, we're looking at the broad gate, not at the narrow one. Are we learning from Jesus to walk in this narrow way of life? The life that he actually himself says is hard. Not that it's not full of life, not that it's not full of joy, not that it's not full of any of those things, but there is a difficultness to it. It's why Jesus describes discipleship as those who take up their cross and follow him. We have to sort of wrestle with whether or not our lives are increasingly aligned with the teaching of Jesus. That as we are going about life with Jesus, learning from Jesus, are our lives coming into greater alignment with him? Or is there another teacher, another ideology, another thing that we're actually placing over the top of Jesus or reading Jesus through or trying to get Jesus to fit in? Jesus isn't, this is not, discipleship is not fitting me into other things it's everything 
coming under submission to me? Are there other things that we actually value more than discipleship to Jesus? Are there things that we have values about and then we take the teachings of Jesus and sort of pull them out of context and co-opt them to support our way of living rather than letting the words of Jesus really hit us? And to say, okay, Jesus, what you're calling me to is a narrow gate and a narrow road defined by you. And so by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, would you teach me how to live like you? He goes on from there and he says this. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you dressed like sheep, but inside they're vicious wolves. And you will know them by their fruits. Do people get bunches of grapes with thorny weeds? Or do they get figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruits and every rotten tree produces bad fruits. A good tree can't produce bad fruits and a bad or rotten tree can't produce good fruits. Every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, you will know them by their fruits. Here Jesus warns us to be aware of people who claim to speak for God and who at first glance look the part. At first glance actually appear to be followers of Jesus. They look like sheep. But on closer examination, on maybe extended examination over time, we realize that their words and their lives, their sort of public life, and their personal life don't actually match. There's incoherence there. And he says that we'll be able to tell the difference by the fruit that they bear. Interestingly, the word that's translated here as bear is the Greek word for do. It's a word that Jesus uses over and over and over again, calling us into action, calling us into doing. What Jesus is saying is that a character of a tree is revealed by what it produces, but the character of a person, and particularly in this passage, the character of a leader, is revealed by what he or she does, by how he or she lives. For Jesus, it's actually obedience to him that makes the difference. It's obedience to him. That is the thing that he is concerned about. The fruit that Jesus is talking about here specifically is probably the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of success. He's saying, what about character? What about love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control? Those are the things that he's looking for, not numbers and influence and platform which are the things that we typically look at and say, but look at the fruit of the ministry. Look at the fruit of that thing. I think this is actually one of the great challenges inside of Christian celebrity culture. That with the rise of the internet and social media and podcasts and streaming and TikTok and whatever else, we have unprecedented access, access to content and to teachers people with absolutely phenomenal gifts, and yet we're not close enough to actually know any of them, to see them, to meet them, to watch their lives, to talk to them, to talk to the people who live with them, to talk to the people that work with them, 
to see them in the supermarket or the coffee shop or see how they treat other people. By no means does that, does that indicate that the size of someone's platform or any of those things makes them a false prophet. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is it's very interesting that the New Testament actually prioritizes proximity. It prioritizes relationships. It prioritizes life-on-life kinds of things. The New Testament prioritizes local church contexts for living out our lives to Jesus together. Perhaps we should do the same. (laughs) At the same time, if the main message of this passage is Jesus continually inviting us into self-reflection, then we have to recognize that our coherence with Jesus matters. That we too must must beware of becoming false prophets, of becoming people who claim Jesus, who look the part and talk the part, but our lives actually look nothing like the person that we claim to follow. That that danger actually exists for all of us. That it's possible to live in deception. Jesus actually goes on and says it this way. He says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will get into the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. On the judgment day, many people will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and expel demons in your name and do lots of miracles in your name? Then I'll tell them, I've never known you. Get away from me, you people who do wrong. It's not only possible to deceive others, but it is actually possible to deceive ourselves. It's possible to call Jesus Lord, to possess some remarkable abilities, to perform spectacular miracles, to even do those things in the name of Jesus and yet be unknown by him to not actually be one of his disciples and to be deemed by Jesus as someone who does what is wrong or evil rather than someone who does the will of God. And so we have to wrestle in this text that according to Jesus, our obedience to him matters. Discipleship is radical obedience to, the, to Jesus and to his teachings. Jesus says in the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey. The discipleship comes to a place of obedience, of greater and increasing obedience as empowered by the Spirit as we grow and mature in faith. This does not cancel or nullify the grace of God in any means. It doesn't cancel or or nullify the grace of God at the beginning of the sermon. He says, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who are thirsty. It doesn't nullify any of that. In fact, our obedience, our allegiance, our work, whatever we want to say, are simply, are made possible because of God's grace. We couldn't do any of those things if Jesus hadn't come. If Jesus hadn't died, if Jesus hadn't risen again, if Jesus hadn't sent the Spirit, we would be helpless. But now the very Spirit of God lives inside of us. They are now the appropriate response to God's grace in our life. They are the continued ways that we participate in God's grace. And the New Testament doesn't separate these things like we do. It's like somehow this all gets caught up in God's grace. James says, be not only hearers of the word, but doers, because faith without works is 
dead. It's not actually faith. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And therefore, I worked harder than all of them. Oh, but not me. That was the grace inside of me. And he's constantly going, what is this? Is this grace? Is it me? And Paul says, yes. It's both. The grace at work helping us to say yes to God and the grace working through us. In this text, we see people with extraordinary gifts and abilities and power. And they do some amazing things. And they do so in Jesus' name. And Jesus has a negative assessment of their lives. Even though these things can accompany his followers, we do see miracles and those things accompanying those that follow him. But what the New Testament is constantly reminding us, what Jesus is reminding us, is that those things are not the key indicator of his followers. The key indicator of his followers is obedient love. It's those who love. The New Testament says, they will know you are my disciples by your Love, not by your great deeds, but the simple acts of obedient love matter in our lives. Matthew 25 depicts the final judgment this way. It's gathering everyone in front of them and, shepherd, and separating sheep and goats. And he says to the sheep who are representative of his disciples, that this is who his disciples are. They are those that gave food to the hungry water to the thirsty, hospitality to the stranger, clothing to the naked, care for the sick, and presence to the imprisoned. That these are the things that mark the lives of my disciples, those who love God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and those who love their neighbor as themselves, and those who even go to the place of loving their enemies. As Mike and the worship team come forward, when we live life this way, when we live lives that are marked by simple, obedient love, our lives actually begin to look like our Lord. Our lives begin to look like Jesus. This is how he lived. This is how he loved us. And actually, this is how he continues to love us. And we can come to the end of this kind of message, these end of these words. And I think what happens is we, we come to the end of the word, to this section and all of the self-inspection goes on inside of us. And we, what we're meant to do is actually fall to our knees and to recognize that we don't have that kind of righteousness in and of ourselves. And it pushes us all the way back to the beginning of the sermon where Jesus says, Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are you who recognize your great need, your great dependence on my saving grace and on the grace of the Spirit of God coming at work in your lives to help you to live in different ways. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because we will be filled. That Jesus will actually come to help us. Jesus will continually lift us up. He'll continually forgive us. He'll continually grab us by the hand and say, let's go again. Let's try that again. Let me help you. Let me teach you. Let me show you. Let me come alongside of you. 
Let me surround you with other people who are walking this same narrow, hard road together so that you can say to one another, come on, let me show you. Let me teach you. Let me follow along with you. Let me help you. Let me pray for you. Let me know that you're forgiven. Let me help you to know the love and the grace and the truth and the power of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Come on, let's keep walking this narrow, difficult road together. Why? Because we know at the end of the road is life. And we know throughout the road there's life because with us on this road is Jesus all of the time saying to us who hunger and thirst for righteousness that you will be filled. And we reenact that every week as we come to the table. We come to the table hungering and thirsting for righteousness, saying, Jesus, we, we can't live this way on our own. We need you. And as we come to the table, Jesus says, everything I have is yours. And everything that you need for life and for godliness is being made available to you. You can't do this on, the, on your own. And you don't do this on your own. I'm walking this narrow road with you. Yes. This is part of why we come to this table every week so that when you hear a sermon like that, it's not leading us to ourselves. It is leading us back to him. Our response matters. Our obedience matters. And his obedience was even to the point of death and death on a cross. So that there is no righteousness by ourselves, but it is him. And so we come and we respond. And we come and we reenact and we come to be filled again so that we could walk the narrow road of obedience. This is Jesus' table. And all who believe that Jesus is the true king of the world are welcome to receive regardless of your church background or affiliation. If you don't believe as we are professing and we believe, thank you for choosing to spend Sunday morning with us. We're honored that you're here. We encourage you, keep coming back. Keep asking questions about Jesus. However, if you are ready to believe in Jesus and follow his teachings, we invite you to join with us as we confess our sin and ask for forgiveness from him and place our trust in him again. The words of confession as we've been going through this Lent season are taken from Psalm 51. It's a psalm from David where he's confessing his own sin and we're joining in that narrative of our confession. So as the words come up on the screen from the last part of Psalm 51, let's confess together. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Look with favor on Zion and help her. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit. Beloved, it is my joy this morning to announce good news to you. Words that are true, not because I say them, but because of what God has done. So would you open up your hands and receive again this mercy of God. That Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners 
And this proves God's love toward us. So in the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. The peace of the Lord be with you. As those who have been raised to new life in Jesus, would you stand together now and greet those and extend forgiveness of Jesus to one another by saying to one another, in the name of Jesus, you are forgiven. Jesus is here. So lift up your hearts. And let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right all over the room for his great mercy, his forgiveness, his righteousness. It is a good and joyful thing to give thanks to you, Father Almighty. You formed us in your image and breathed your life into us. When our love failed, your love remained steadfast. When we were unfaithful, you sent your son to be faithful on our behalf. It was on the night that he was handed over to suffering and death that our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And when he had blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup of wine, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of God's mighty acts in Christ Jesus, we proclaim together this mystery of faith, that Christ has died, that Christ is risen, and that Christ will come again. We believe that all of us who are in Christ are part of a priesthood of believers. So would you stretch out your hands heavenward or over the elements? We're going to invite the Holy Spirit to meet us here. So pour out your spirit on us and on these gifts of bread and wine. May they be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, make us one with Jesus one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Jesus returns in final victory. Amen. Amen. I want to invite the servers up now. Thank you, Pacquiams. These are the gifts of God given for us, the people of God, Receive them in remembrance that Jesus has died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. If this is your first time here, you can scan the QR code or just watch what's going on. I don't have to tell you after 11 years how to come and take communion anymore. So for everybody who's been here before, you know how. If you are unable to come forward, please ask someone around you to bring the elements to you. Now let us respond to his great mercy and worship and coming forward to receive communion again together right now. <laughs> 